The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the aisle. Hey, everyone. I'm Lauren Lojudice, and welcome to the Reconcile the Isle election special on Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I wanted to bring in our resident historian to give us some context on why this election in particular is important, how it relates to American history, and what we need to be doing into the future. So if you're listening to this after November 3rd election, there's going to be a lot in here for you because we talk a lot about how to preserve democracy. You might recognize Professor Daniel Holtz from Episodes 8 and 2. To recap, she's a historian of U.S. political culture, intellectual history, and U.S. foreign policy. She focuses on conservatism and white supremacy in the 19th and 20th centuries. And she's currently working on a book manuscript about racial nationalism and American politics based on her dissertation. Who are the two conservatives? A critical history of American conservatism in the 19th century. She received a Ph.D. in history from the University of Pennsylvania in 2017. She also served as the assistant editor for the Oxford Encyclopedia of American Military and Diplomatic History, published in 2013. As we talk about in the podcast, Danny really knows her stuff. Take care of yourselves, and I will talk to you next week after the election. And of course, all sorts of goodies happen over at laurenlogie.com slash podcast, where you can sign up to become a podcast VIP. And all sorts of gag gifts, including our patented Trump off soap to give to your progressive friends and also to piss off your conservative family members are at the Melaniashow.com. Welcome, Dr. Danny Holtz to Reconcile the Isle. You're basically our resident scholar at this point. You're our go to person for what the F is going on. Someone tell us, Dr. Danny Holtz, <laughs> thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now, the election is uh, very soon, next week, but I think what we're going to talk about is going to be applicable forever and ever because there's a lot of themes, historical themes we're going to be talking about, and it's not like these people, and you know what I mean, are going to go away. So, so Danny, uh, Dr. I'm sorry, Dr. Danny, Danny and I are friends, if you haven't figured this out by now, intellectual compatriots. So, this is not... The only time in American history we, that we, this is a lot of unprecedented, but also a lot of some of what we've seen before. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. So actually, I was just talking about this the other night, that the parallels made a lot um, civil war. And I think that makes sense for a large number of reasons. I've been making the comparison between James Buchanan, who was president right before Abraham Lincoln, and Donald Trump for a long time. Uh, he's someone who committed some genocides. He was a lifelong politician, but just so much corruption. Sometimes when you like your brain goes down the rabbit hole of historical corruption and um, the horrors of enslavement and um, indigenous genocide in this country, my brain explodes a little. <laughs> well, and then let's just give people context. Like, you know, everything. Like, I don't know what else to say. Just like when she's like referencing one thing, like, okay, to give context, like in one chapter, you had 
250 resources, one chapter of her book. Her yeah, my, my, yeah, my, my, my book uh, is based on over 3,500 primary sources. And it starts, it starts with um, Locke, and it goes up to the Civil War. So she's like, okay, I could wait. I'm going to reference, but wait, I have 335 other things to say about that one word you just said. Okay, so this is what's going on. This is why I'm saying she's a resident historian. She knows. I feel so seen right now. Okay, so there is about the same time period between the founding of the U.S. government in the late 1780s, early 1790s, and the generational period leading up to the Civil War, as there is between World War II, so the rise of fascism. And that's not just a rise of fascism in, in Europe. It's an international rise of fascism that is similar in size and scope to the one we're seeing now. So there's a similar distance between that period and now, right? That you see this kind of moment where there's this attempt at what is described as like a a republic of a liberal democracy in the revolutionary period with all of these ideals that is mapped onto a white supremacist system and that those structures historically grow up together, right? So there's always both a democratic and an anti-democratic element, but the entire system is built to support white supremacy. That's both in terms of enslavement and the historical development of industrial capitalism. This is in the 19th century. Yes. And, and can you just, because some people hear the term white supremacy and they think Nazis and buzz cut. How is white supremacy different than a white supremacist? Ooh, that's a great question. I am going to try not to get pedantic. Those are related questions. First, historically, uh, white supremacists and white supremacy come to, to, are actually terms of art into late 19th century, like 1890s. I would say the difference is white supremacy uh, is a ideology. By that, which I mean, it is ideas that structure our lives, our meaning, our understanding of the world, our interaction with it. It is the translator through which reality passes when you live in a white supremacist system. Um, a white supremacist is someone, uh, I would say, either who expressly adheres to white supremacy, meaning they believe that white people are better than non-white people, and also that they should hold power. That's the supremacy part. So it's people who are invested in white power um, and the perpetuation of white power. Historically, and in my work, I refer to this usually as white hegemony. I just don't like to use it when I'm talking about it in public because hegemony sounds like, whoa, what does that mean? What's Mm -hmm. that, Jamon? I can't spell it still, but anyway, yeah. (laughs) What it really means is a totalizing system of power where one group, in this case, white people, hold power over other groups. And that's... that's yeah. So it's basically like white supremacy is just this system we find ourselves in where like, oh my God, a white person is the head of everything of all power in this country. And white supremacist who's like, yeah, that's right. That's the way it should be. That's kind of... Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. Right? You're, born, you're born into a world... And even the uh, resume of Menachem talks about this, that... Uh, we know that even as children are, you know, in the womb, as they are, as they are being born, that because of the appalling and disproportionately higher 
maternal mortality rates uh, for BIPOC women and particularly for black women um, in this country than for white women, that that child is experiencing levels of stress hormones that white children, like literally passing through the birthing canal, don't experience. And that is often used, uh, that's a literal manifestation of how white supremacy is written on people's bodies. Right? So like, even before you take your first breath, the fact that you're being born into a white supremacist system affects how your life is going to go, the trajectory of your life. And we know this is true. Like, Serena Williams almost died because doctors didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. So all of, the, all of the parts. And I think that's really important, that to say that we live in a white supremacist system, I've witnessed people get defensive a lot. Yes, because they're like, I'm not, but I'm not, I'm not wearing, you know, I'm not wearing the buzz cut and the, the boots. Yeah. Um, or, you know, isn't there anything redeemable in this country? I'm not sure what that means. We just had, it was just uh, Yom Kippur. It's Sukkot right now. On Yom Kippur, you say this thing, uh, have a communal confessional where you all take responsibility for all of the bad things because you're all part of a community where those bad things have occurred, which means that in some ways, through action or inaction, you contributed to that thing happening, that we're all responsible for all of the things that happen in our communities, that you collectively confess those sins, that you collectively ask God to forgive your community for those sins. And as a person who believes you know, the metaphor functions, in that instance, I always translate God to justice, right? That, that if you're praying towards this kind of entity, that this ideal that moves you, that what we're seeking is justice in this world. And the things that avert whatever decree is made based on how hard you are reflecting, because prayer, tefillah, that's, that's literally translates to reflection and judgment. The idea is that God is judging in this period and that you're thinking really hard about the kind of person you've been and the kind of person you want to be, the kind of community you live in, and the kind of community you want to build. And there are three things that you can do to avert whatever decree is written in the Book of Life at the end of Yom Kippur. Teshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah. Teshuva, it, it literally means kind of a return. It often is translated as answers. And it's really this seeking of a return almost to home, right? Your home being that truth, that central uh, truth of the kind of, of justice, of, of universal worth of people. This thing that, is, that binds us together. Tefillah is reflection on those answers that you've sought, a judgment about um, what is good and what is bad in your life, what is valuable and what is not. And then tzedakah is often translated as charity, but it really means righteousness. It's about bringing righteousness into the world, returning the world to justice, returning the world to balance. And that all of these things help avert whatever the Roah HaGazera, the evil decree is. And I like to think of Roah HaGazera as it can also be translated as kind of like the thing that separates us, mm-hmm. that the, the decree is evil because we are alienated from each other. And a lot of the things that we confess in the traditional Badui, the traditional confessional, are, are about things that uh, separate us, disrespecting our families and teachers, um, embezzling, um, lying. There are a lot of things that alienate us from each other and from our communities. So that if we think about it, in the, this country, white supremacy is our Roa Hagazera. It is our evil decrees. It is the thing that separates us from each other. And not just white people from non-white people, from, from BIPOC people, white non-Jews, 
from white Jews. It's not just a system of hierarchy. It is something that we need to use all of our capacities to fight against perpetually. That our communal structures, our society, our actions all create this thing. It is a rogue is there for white people. It is an evil decree that they must work constantly to undo. And so if you ask me what do I find that's valuable, it, it's that process that if we view the American Revolution as a genuine move towards democratizing, that at the same time these white supremacist commitments and is also happening because the British are allying with the Native American populations after the um, Seven Years War, there's, and also because there's, there's a, also, if you, you know, the 1619 Project, there's a lot about um, resistance to anti-enslavement movements and abolitionist movements that kind of works its way into why states that have enslavement want to also join this fight. That if you return to that moment and you see those, that rogue is there, the things that are done wrong, then our constant process of, of thinking through and building something where, that brings us actually together, we can have the ideals. If there's, a, if there's a thing that is good about this country, it is that we know that there's a capacity to create change towards ideals, towards justice. And it doesn't have to be the revolutionaries. There are people working at all times to make this a not white supremacist system forever. Yeah. It's like we, we had this great, all these great ideas about democracy and freedom. And yet we were also uh, had this system of slavery at the same time. So it's just basically like, all right, let's make good on this promise. Shit was fucked up. Let's try to like make this real. And also, I also really want to, I really want to impress that people in what became the United States that there's all kinds of resistance happening. That we often think about uh, the founders as being the people whose voices are heard or um, amplified. But all the people who are here in that moment are also foundational, right? So the voices of enslaved people who are fighting for um, their own agency and freedom, that's also foundational to this country the free people of color who, who, like, as well, the um, white abolitionists who allied with them, the kinds of resistance you see in Native American communities, and indigenous communities, uh, first people communities. This is all happening, right? So these are also all sources that are U.S. historical sources that are part of the fabric of our country. It's like, it's so often taught, like, you have these sources and these are America, and their presidential speeches and their diplomatic statements and their these policies that are made by these yeah. men in power, right? And that's not all this country is. That's not all of our resources. That's not all of, yeah, you know? It's like Facebook was there, but just not expressed. Like everyone was saying their shit, but in their own houses to each other. It's yeah, not like people all of a sudden had their voice heard. Yeah. People kind of were annoyed at other people all the time, except maybe they didn't tell everyone what they ate for breakfast. That is a modern ab aberration. <laughs> also, they like literally wrote it out of the record, right? So when people did send, you know, there was a gag rule in Congress. So when people did send in statements, they tabled them. They didn't even look at them. They didn't record them in the record. 
and when you when you look at kind of voter suppression, you look at the reaction to reconstructions, so you have a large number of black representatives in Congress and Senate, and those people are violently suppressed. Lynching and uh, police murders of black people, these are all ways to suppress voices and to erase those voices from the record, to literally erase them. So the... The context that we find in ourselves now is similar to what we've seen before. And what do you think happened uh, that needs to happen now that that beat it back or did it beat it back? Those are all. The reason I made the parallel to the kind of Marshall Plan to now is that the Marshall Plan is often thought of as, so the Marshall Plan is the plan that after World War II that was both about fighting fascism and building up Europe, uh, investing heavily in it so it didn't fall to fascism again. And there are ways that that kind of investment parallels the GI Bill. So both of those are about fighting fascism, fighting um, ultimately about fight, also fighting communism, um, and and in theory at least spreading liberal democracy, and doing it in order to counter this kind of moment, right, reactionary moment. Um, so another parallel here is Reconstruction, but you see this similar arc because the ways that they're doing it aren't actually addressing what is structural and historical, right? Anti-Semitism, white supremacy, which encompasses conspiracy theories, uh, which is uh, founded in historical anti-Semitism, so um, Islamophobia, and then misogyny, um, and then uh, anti-Blackness, anti-BIPOC. These are the kind of pillars, and you have to constantly be addressing all of these elements in order, in order to actually fight fascism, because they'll resurge. They're built, in, they're baked into the systems. Um, they're baked into cultures and the societies. They're baked into politics. They're baked into structures of capital uh, and systems of power. Um, and they are a way to gain power. They are a lever. They are leveraged to gain power. Um, so, like in 1902, when um, the Tsar of Russia had the protocols of El the elders of Zion published. He did it because he was losing power. And the same thing happens with Nazi Germany. These are like ways of gaining power when the system itself is not necessarily going to let you have the kind of power you want. And that's what's going on now. Yeah. So I think that's what's going on now that we didn't do. You can have this ideal of kind of liberal democracy, but that the U.S. ideal of liberal democracy was always a white supremacist concept, that it doesn't actually address the kinds of democratic change you need. And so over the course of time, it created the same kind of product that it created in the revolutionary era, right? If you don't actually work constantly to make the change and to ensure that you have a true democracy where everyone's voices are heard and represented, then you end up back here. Yeah. So is Donald like the King George? <laughs> they say. <laughs> um, that's, like, that's interesting. Is Donald King George? Uh, I don't know. I think Donald's more like, um, I think Donald's James Buchanan. Mm. Also figures in my book doing a high kick in a storytelling, a retelling <laughs> of a grim fairy tale. Um, <laughs> and I mean, also Mitch McConnell's in the thong in that very oh same story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. We've had minority rule in this country for a long time and the structures of democracy have been built over and over again in this country to support minority rule, period. Mm -hmm. I'm working on some sketches with Ivanka. I'm giving some dictator quotes and telling us how amazing they are. And 
uh, the thing about I forget who said it. Fascism is like a basically is like corporate and government power come together, and that's fascism. I thought that was oligarchy. Ah, ooh, good questions. Good question. Can I got an A plus because I never got an A plus because I was too afraid to talk in class. So can I get an A? You always get an A plus. That's a really good question. It's actually relevant to that. So that when you ask the question about Donald Trump, who he's similar to, it's like you don't want to make the Hitler comparison, but Hitler was treated as a joke by everyone else. If anyone hasn't watched The Great Dictator, the Charlie Chaplin movie, mm-hmm. um, I highly recommend it. In part because he views Hitler as a doofus. A lot of people did. It was a joke to a lot of people, even after genocides. Um, And so I think that's really important to keep in mind. Uh, And the other one is, of course, Putin, right? So what's the difference between fascism and oligarchy? We really, a little bit, you should have Craig Franson, Dr. Craig Franson Mm. on your podcast, um, because he's he's an expert in modern fascism in a way that as a historian, like, I get a little bit touchy about those kinds of things, but I'll say this. Okay, so fascism is a totalizing system. It's an ism, like white supremacy. Oligarchy is more instrumental, right? Oligarchs are um, like wealthy, powerful people. <laughs> Historically in Rome, now in, in, in Russia um, and elsewhere around the world. And it's both a term of art, like a, a way for us to refer to lots of very wealthy people around the world. I feel like Sarah Kenzier, uh, who's a podcast with Gaslit Nation and also mm-hmm. uh, just has a book come out, uh, In Plain Sight, um, she talks about this more oligarchy and oligarchs and kind of how the oligarchic system rose over time. Fascism requires all, and that doesn't require all the elements that I raised before. So fascism actually requires the elements of racism, misogyny, and conspiracism, which is, is often in the like, structures of historical anti-Semitism, but can then be mm-hmm. traded out where like Hillary Clinton is, tra- George Soros is traded in for Jews, or globalists are trading for Jews, and then Hillary Clinton becomes the mm-hmm. figure, but all the language is the same, and it becomes like a surface level thing, but underneath that and in the like channels where these people are talking, that's the shorthand. So fascism requires these ideological components all to work together in order to justify and ensure power. So I would say that, that we get at fascism when you hit, historically it's corporatism, but here it's corporate capitalism. Corporate capitalism plus white nationalism or white Christian nationalism, which is actually, I think, what we're seeing right now. Capitalism and nationalism together tend to make fascism. Uh, because fascism is um, a totalizing and organic system um, where everything works in um, synchronicity and hierarchy to create mm-hmm. a perfectible system. Yeah, those are the differences. So could, I thought Putin was a little bit of a misogynist, just a yeah. little bit. But so then, so then why is he an oligarch and not? Well, all of us can be misogynists and racists and anti Semites also. And Putin certainly is. And honestly, like, I would actually be really interested. Um, at some point, let's do this with France in here too. Yes, I, yes. I am liberal in my use of fascism. I call lots of people fascist. I would say Putin's at least fascistic. I don't know. It certainly seems like a fascist. Well, to me. this is like, something. I, yeah, I heard. Okay, I'll just say names. I don't care. Uh, 
I heard Kelly Carlin say, I think she's a bit misguided here, and I don't know what she says now. So, you know, to give her credit, maybe she said it then. Maybe she doesn't believe that now. But she said something about how the left or progressives are fascist, using fascist tactics. The left? Is using fascist tactics. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, for instance, like, as an example, um, when Kevin Hart, wasn't able to host an award show because of a tweet he tweeted a long time ago and people were trying to cancel him or even Randy Rainbow. Someone was trying to cancel him for something he tweeted a really long time ago and maybe poor taste, but he doesn't agree with now. And people say like, well, all of this canceling is, is fascist. They're using, fa- yeah. Why? Why would they say it's fascist? Because they're just quickly like canceling people, getting them out. I think that's what she didn't explain why, but it's just that they're, you know, you're not allowed to talk about this or that. And so people feel like it's fascist. Were they saying that the government should arrest him or? No, I think they're just saying the progressive is fascist. That, that, that's how they talk about it. Like, you know, no, right. I'm asking yeah. these questions rhetorically. I, I understand what you're saying, and I understand what they're trying oh, to do. Oh, okay, okay. But what I'm trying to point out with these questions, I should have been clear, I'm sorry, is fascism requires a move to a specific kind of power, and it requires to, like, you can say, I don't think that J.K. Rowling should be given platforms. I think that her transphobia is hateful and horrifying. I don't think you can be transphobic and progressive or whatever term we want to use for how she describes her politics on other areas. I don't think there's any kind of like asterisk where you can like be hateful to one group or exclusionary or racing to one group um, and not others. To me, that doesn't apply to people who are creating hate speech. Oh, yeah, actually, that's not, that's not quite where I want to go with this. I want to say this. If I were to say, I don't think JK Rowling should have a platform. I'm not saying she should be arrested and put in jail. I'm not saying what she said should be illegal. I'm not saying she's committed treason. These are all things that Trump and the right have used to describe leftists. Or, or to, I don't think someone should take a gun and go to her house. I just think that if you have views that are hateful, that are damaging to people who live in marginalized bodies, then you shouldn't be given the platform to spread that hate. And honestly, like from the right, who believe in a free market capitalist system to respond to people saying, like Kevin Hart getting that job or not getting that job, he doesn't have a right to that job. Kavanaugh doesn't have a right to a Supreme Court seat. None of them are owed anything. So if a whole bunch of people, and those are two different things, right? If, but a whole bunch of, bunch of people don't want Kevin Hart to get that job because several years ago he made a statement that is against LGBTQ rights and values that suggest that he would less value a child who came out to him. Which he doesn't agree with now. Which he doesn't agree with now, but. Yeah, again, which he doesn't agree with now. And like, that sucks that he said a thing in public that was hateful that he's being held accountable for. And we can also talk about how like, those kinds of um, like corrections tend to hit people who are uh, relatively less, in relatively less positions of power. So um, black men and like Al Franken's a good example, right? Someone who did things that are like kind of shitty. Yeah. Like, achy. Should he not be in the Senate? 
honestly, he did icky things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, yeah. he's pushed out because of his relative power powerlessness. And that's like made off. Like this is a kind of thing that like, we can talk about that too. Like that is a thing that people need to be aware of. But like Kevin Hart's doing fine. His job is fine. <laughs> he's not yeah. in jail. Like, yeah, I think that's, it's... Um, that's how fascist feels. The right, usually conservatives, you will argue like a toddler, like, you're racist, I'm racist, you're racist, you know, you're hateful, you're hateful, like, you're a fascist, you're a fascist. This is why when I meet Melania Trump, I'm just going to go up to her and I'm going to be dressed as her and I'm going to mirror her whenever she says something. Like, I, I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> Go away. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> this, is, this is accurate. Actually, this is a, that's an excellent point in every way. Everything is projection. The thing that fascinates me about this, this whole everything is how often the right, uh, they periscope what they're going to do by telling you it through the left. They say the left is going to steal the election in these ways. And then they're trying to do the same thing. It's amazing. It's like a magic trick. It's, it's. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of it is Roy Cohn, um, the lawyer uh, who Trump kind of learned at his knee. He's, he was um, a McCarthy era lawyer. It's very famous political operative and Trump grew up under him. And he basically was like, I mean, Putin does this all the time. People, if you do something big enough, people will let you get away with it. Right? Trump told us before, if you're wealthy enough and powerful enough, the country will let you grab it by the pussy. Yeah. We might want to put a trigger warning before that. It's fine. Uh, if you listen to this podcast, I just had a joke about Donald wiping his asshole. So <laughs> It's less about the disgustingness than like as someone who has been literally grabbed yeah. by the pussy. It can be a little jarring to come upon that. So just, we don't have to put a trigger warning. Like, yeah, 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 I say. Cool. Um, yeah, I've had my, I've had my pussy grabbed many times, such as being an American woman. Yeah. I was at Stonewall once after one of our shows and I was talking to my friend, Dan, who was DJing and I felt two hands on my butt. And the first thing I had in my head was, I was like, is that my, is that my gentleman friend? And I saw him at the corner of my eye and I was like, maybe it's my lady friend. And then I saw her on the other side of the room and I was like okay well I'm sleeping with no other people in this room and I turn around and this random guy just and he goes sweetheart you have the best ass in the room and I was just like I please get your hands off my ass yeah yeah I mean that's like that's my most anodyne story ever but yeah like, that's <laughs> that's so yeah I know we're places where you think yeah things are safe now, going into next week, why is it important that this work, anti-fascist work, goes on beyond? It's not like Joe Biden winning will solve anything like in this regard. It will give us a lot of solutions to problems, uh, but it won't solve some underlying very big ones. Yes. A fact to that point, for example, after Trump's very fine people on both sides equivalent at the debate the recruitment numbers for Proud Boys went up, like way up. So we, we know that there are fascist groups in this country, white supremacist, white nationalist groups in this country that have increased in size under Trump. 
I think it's important to always reiterate that Trump is a symptom and not the problem. So, of course, there's a lot of work to do after this, um, dismantling white supremacist and fascist and fascist supporting groups and networks. So, and, and then like all of the other work that should have been done for the years past mm -hmm. that weren't, right? Like the ways that, um, I, I know I keep coming back to the Marshall Plan, but the ways that the, the post-World War II project was about um, shoring up the structures of capitalism and uh, liberalism in a way that supported like free market capitalism. I'm using air quotes, which your listeners can't hear. That, that these ideologies then recreate the structures of oppression that lead us to this, this extreme moment um, of white supremacist expression. But the, like, the structures and content of it is always there. It's that the ways that we were interceding was only paying attention to these like um, surface level structures of democracy. There's some really good work on this uh, in terms of like, um, Eastern European democracy. And so I'm thinking like uh, Masha Geshen's book on autocracy, anything that looks at the history of Ukraine, again, Sarah Kendier's work. This idea that we think of democracy as a thing that exists that can then be like planted as opposed to a constant set of behaviors that have to be done, mm -hmm. right? Living in a country, being a citizen, is behaviors. It's always been defined by behaviors. So paying attention to the fact that those behaviors have always been restricted from certain people. The things that let you have access to full rights in this country, to full democratic participation, have always been allowed to a certain number of people. And so we have to attend to that because if we don't, if we don't do all that stuff now, we never hit a point where we hit a kind of balance. Mm -hmm. And again, that work never ends. The work of restorative justice, the work of righteousness, it is perpetual. We never get to a point where we're done. It's like being a citizen is an active thing. Like it's not just you can just sit back. And I do think when Obama was elected, people thought like, all right, we're done now. And it's like, oh, oh no, oh, oh no, oh no. And then what happened in the midterms? No one voted. Everyone was like, yeah, well, I guess, we're, I no. guess we got this. No, no, the midterms, okay, this is, this is really important, actually, especially because it's right before the election. The midterms are an example of how Democrats do more mail-in voting than Republicans and how early reports are often misleading. So there's this like, oh, it's going to be a blue wave. And then in the day of the election, the day after, it wasn't as many people, it wasn't as big as people thought it was going to be. They started talking about blue trickle. But it actually was a blue wave when all the ballots were counted Democrats won in astonishing numbers, in numbers that hadn't been true since FDR. Like, we're talking seismic. But that, the media had already set the story of trickle. And that's what helped. Well, I was talking about the midterms during Obama. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yes, but that's a, really important to note as well. Like, look at that. Look at what happens when we vote. Like, look at this. Like, look what look what happens. Like it really does create change. Yeah. And so you got to get out there and vote every single time. Like you have to be, I mean, I think one thing this whole nightmare of Donald has taught us is that taught me is that like, holy moly, I really got to know what's going on in my community Yes. because they're going to slip shit in and I'm no. not going to like it. So it's really important to be involved and to and know what's going on. There's no other, like, involved both in the citizenship, 
like that, this is like a short version of my curriculum. Citizenship is both of these parts. It is the, the act of voting and being involved in politics, right? Yeah. Um, but politics is, suffuses everything. It's the way you live in the world. It has to be a commitment to your community, not just to be active in political voting and, and knowing who your candidates are, but also being invested in the community which you live, uh, knowing your neighbors, knowing um, what does and doesn't work in your community, knowing all the different communities that, that live in the city you are in and what they need and what they need historically and making sure people who are representing them politically, right? Like having these conversations where people who represent you politically are representing you. They are a person who have lived an experience that represents some of the experiences that are lived in the community in which you are. Because that's how you notice these things. You can't just always project yourself into someone else's position. You need all of the voices from your community, your broad community in your city to be heard. And to also hear those, right? Each of us needs to like actually become members of a community. Yeah, democracy is work, okay? So if we don't want to do nothing, then we end up with fascism. Yeah. It's just like if you just want someone else to make the decisions for you, but you're not going to like the decisions that they make because they're not thinking about you. Like yeah. they're not, they don't have your interests at heart. So you got to get out there and like everyone's really busy and overwhelmed. And so how do you make it a part of your life? Well, you make it through conversations you have with people. You know, there are like people or are also social media accounts like dedicated to doing this kind of work with just giving you information that is digestible you know, we're just staying on top of like your local news, like what's going on, what's coming up on the, on the ballot and just really being able to find ways to get that information because it's really, really important. And we talk about news sources you trust, but also people you trust. Yeah. Like, you know, we have a group, a broad group of friends who are brilliant and amazing and wonderful and invested in the world. Um, and we all are experts in different areas and we like to share our expertise. I think it's very important to think strategically too about having conversations with people where you can make that kind of connection explicit, especially because I know you know lots of people who are invested and interested. Let's say six or eight people in your life that you talk to about this stuff regularly who are also concerned, who are also invested. Form a little like, you know, group, little committee with them, a little collective so that you can support each other when you're tired so that like maybe there's a person, I'm never on Facebook. So I have a friend who is on Facebook and who lets me know when there are protests um, in Center City. And I have a friend who lets me know when there are protests in West Philly um, and what the nature of those are. My friend Shamanti Lahiri, the brilliant doctor Shamanti Lahiri, is an expert in um, immigration and social movements. She's the person I talk to when I want to think through where to put my activist energy mm -hmm. um, or what's going on with various immigrant policies. Like, we all have investments and interests. I think really looking to each other right now, we think about these kinds of changes. When I say community, I mean your home, your family, your neighborhood, your block, your city, your state, but also like your friends, your friends physically close, your friends far. We need to think of ourselves as a broad variety of networks because then we're not alone. Not any one of us right now is alone. There are so many people concerned and fighting and it's gonna take every single one of them and also, like, you, you're right, it's work. It's going to cost. It's a job. Timothy Snyder said this recently. It's work. It's a job. You have to do the work. 
otherwise this is where we end up. And that's, I think like, this is what happens when you are not doing the work. And I think we can end up here again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is for your, this maybe for dad too, right? If the vote, if we lose our trust in the vote, if Trump successfully does all the things he has said out loud, he wants to do, including letting foreign actors interfere. That's not just people on the left who lose this vote. That means the death of voting. It means the end of representation because we can no longer trust our voting system. It is important to note that our voting system has always been heavily flawed and non-representative, that there are large swaths of people whose votes have been suppressed for a long time. But I think it's important to stress right now to white people, especially who are not listening, it's not just the left that loses out if this is not a fair election, a free and fair election, where everyone who wants their voices heard are heard. Your dad should be livid that Trump is trying to suppress the vote, the least of which is, in your to Hashem, there's a Democratic president. If these norms are demolished, what's to stop them? I mean, I think there's a lot. I think that the Democratic Party is far more ethical and, and devoted to small d democracy than the Republican. I think there are actual differences between the two parties, even though I think they're both enshrined into and, and deeply invested in a white supremacist capitalist, racial capitalist system. But once those norms are broken, what's to stop? Nothing. Your dad should be pissed. Everyone should be pissed because Trump doesn't care about the democracy. He doesn't care about the country. He doesn't care at all what happens to any single one of us. Yeah. And then I'll be president because I'm going to take like, like all of it together, like in a brilliant, like women supporting women. Remember, ladies, women supporting women and in self-care delegation and always get the deluxe package at the Four Seasons Spa. We can come together <laughs> and support my father and ultimately me. Okay. All right. <laughs> If we're actually talking about the kind of self-care that's going to help us get to the election, through the election, and continue this work no matter yeah. what happens on election day, right? To continue to fight fascism, to continue to fight white supremacy. The kind of self-care we're talking about is really what is really this kind of idea that um, I think Alicia Garza encapsulates this idea um, uh, and Menachem, of, of tending to our bodies as well as tending to the work, that that is part of the work, that caring for each other is part of the work. Um, we talked about this at the beginning of the pandemic. I think treating this similarly to the pandemic is maybe the best way to do it. So be prepared. Be prepared with some food supplies and all the other supplies you'd be prepared with for a pandemic because there's going to be a lot of work to do and you're not going to want to be distracted. Look at the people you have in your life and your networks. Who's going to be the most at risk in this point? Um, who's going to need extra support? The BIPOC people in your life, disabled-bodied people in your life, Jews in your life, uh, reach out, help support the people in your life who are feeling directly attacked. That's a very empowering way to fight fascism. It shouldn't be the only thing you're doing, but if nothing else, that. Make people dinner and bring it to them. Text them cat things. I've gotten a lot of cat content um, of late because of my post-traumatic stress uh, disorder episodes. And I gotta say, the trauma of this moment for a lot of people, I think 
they're experiencing being untethered in time and space. So finding people that help you set those signposts that can ungaslight you, that can reflect reality back to you. Keeping a journal is, can be really important. It's a really important skill because it'll help you keep track of what is real and what is not real. And running those two narratives at the same time, this is the discourse they're putting out. But Trump doesn't shape reality. He hatchets discourse, right? Discourse is incredibly important. Conservatives have been telling us since the 1950s that words matter. I mean, they've been telling us forever that words matter, and they do, which is why it's important for us to call out when someone says something that's transphobic or homophobic. That's why it's important for us to actually think through the ways we talk to each other and to hold people accountable, even if their politics are otherwise good. Because anything that fulfills the white supremacist agenda or the fascist agenda, however partially or self-reflectively, it furthers their aims and it destroys our efforts by alienating us from each other, by separating us from our communities. And that's ultimately how they win. So if someone says to you, this offended me for these reasons, listen. Mm-hmm. Right? If your friend came up to you and you were talking and you accidentally said something and you had no idea that they had had an experience and their reaction to you was, was one of hurt and upset, you would respond immediately by wanting to like mend that brokenness that you created, even if you didn't mean to. And that's, that's the work. That's especially the work of white people to talk to each other and to start fighting hard, doing the work, taking the risks, taking the consequences of mending what, what is broken, what, what we have broken, what we have not stopped from breaking again, what we haven't seen was always broken. Mm, that's so great. Coming home together again. That's beautiful. Well, let's all hold hands and go into next week and just pray that the media doesn't do early reporting. They need to shut the fuck up. Before. Remind each other. It's going to be a while. Yeah, it's going to remind each other not to, not to lose hope or not to be rejoiced yet because it's going, to be a long, it's going to be a long journey. And there are a lot of elections that take a lot longer. And also U.S. elections used to take months. We have so all it's okay. About norms. It's okay. It's okay. So um, now, Dr. Danny Holtz, where can people catch up with you? Um, I think for right now, we'll just say I'm at Danny Holtz on the Twitter, where I twoth, uh mm-hmm. sporadically and often in the middle of the night. Um, and there will be a forthcoming book that I'll announce the next time I hang out with you. Yes, definitely. We'll definitely talk a lot about that. Great. Well, um, thank you again, Dr. Danny.